Okay, mic check. Let's see if this thing's working. I think it is. I misclicked and hit start the stream early. <laughs> I had to quickly stop it. Yeah, I think we're good. Let's go. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. This is Just Human number 204, and you guys know what's up. The Durham report is out, and that is going to be that's going to be our focus for this show and for however many shows it takes us to get through it. Um, glad y'all are here. I think uh, we're, this is going to be the nerd show or the Durham nerd show for the for the foreseeable future. Um, I may even have to do some extra streams to try and get this report in so that we don't fall too far behind the news cycle. But I have to admit, I think um, I think the news cycle will still be there, even if we're not focusing in on it every day, um, or at least during this show. And instead, we're focusing on the Durham report. As you guys know, on Monday, or at least you know if you watch the show on Monday, uh, we we covered a filing that was from a decidedly leftist group, even though they claim that they're nonpartisan, um, which is anti-Durham, anti-Trump, anti-Bar, lefty group, and uh, American Oversight or something like that. 
and they had a FOIA case going back um, for a long time, a couple years now, I think. And they had filed for some thousands for thousands of documents that um, that were for uh, they're related to the Durham investigation, and they they used a FOIA case to try and get access to those documents. And a filing came down from DOJ on Friday, May twelfth, saying that the exemption 7a which i'm clicking the wrong there we go exemption 7a which is the exemption in foia that is like hey you got a um you got an active investigation here that is the wrong screen which one do i want there there chats on screen right now um here we go exemption 7a which is the exemption that covers active investigations and had been put on some 45 plus 4500 plus pages of documents um, had been lifted and that now some other exemptions may apply, but these, they were GOJ, DOJ was no longer claiming this exemption 7A on these 4,500 plus documents related to the Durham investigation, which means a law enforcement investigation had ended. Um, so now they were going to be available and DOJ was filing for a new production schedule and stuff like that. And so I said, um, on the show, and then I said in a social media post that, I think this, rather than signal the end of the Durham investigation and special counsel, I thought this signaled a shift. Um, I thought this meant that Durham entered a new phase. Um, And so I ended the show. That was what I thought. And about an hour after the show, Technofog puts out a post on Telegram saying that there are strong rumors. Strong rumors that Durham is going to release his uh, report by the end of the day on Monday. And sure enough, he did. It came out at four o'clock for all of us, uh, for all of us that aren't in Congress and who aren't in corporate media. We got it at 4 p.m. on Monday. Um, I'm and I kind of thought, well, here's my humble pie. I thought that Durham would uh, do something different than this, but here it is. And, uh, my first question about it was, is this the final report? And it doesn't explicitly say it's his final report, though it does indicate that it is um, through other means without explicitly saying it. Um, I, my next question was, is Durham done? Is Durham ending his special counsel? It does seem that he is. It seems that after he testifies to Congress, that that will be the end of his work. At least it seems that way. Okay. Um, my next question that I had in mind was, are there referrals in here? Are there, um, is he passing off the investigation? Is he passing off some indictments for DOJ to handle? I found some referrals in it and, um, I, there could be more, I'm not sure. But my plan, well, my thought was, okay, well, I got, I got one thing right on Monday. Durham definitely did shift to a new phase. I just didn't realize it was going to be his final phase. And I'll tell you straight up, guys, as you probably know, um, I this is not how I expected it to go. And this is not how y'all expected it to go, many of y'all that follow this show. Um, we thought that Durham would be a special counsel for much longer than this. At least I thought he would be a special counsel for another few years. If you ask me to put a number on it, which people have before, I I was thinking that Durham was going to be special counsel well into Trump's second term and then would pass it off to someone else. 
I was thinking about 2025, 26, 27 is when Durham himself would say, okay, I'm done and I'm passing this off to other people. Um, I thought that Durham's next filing might be an interim report, which he could do. And I thought that he would um, indict, his next indictment would be probably a set of indictments, not a single one. I thought that it would either be the folks at Fusion GPS, Glenn Simpson, and a few others, or that it would be Rodney, Rodney Joffe and uh, a couple others there. Um, so I was wrong. That's not how he handled it. Um, he did something different. And that's okay. I'm not, I, I will say, I put out a post. Let me, um, in fact, I do want to pull this up on from Telegram. Hold up. I didn't plan this out, but now that I'm here, there's a post in the middle of my thread that we'll get to as we go through um, the report. But I put out a post on Telegram that, Telegram is where I made the, I put the same post in other places, but Telegram is where I did the best post. It, it was kind of an evolving thought. I posted it as I was uh, threading, and then I can't. I was like, oh, I'm going to transfer this over to True Social, and then I thought, ah, I'm going to write this out on Telegram. So I'm going to I'm going to start with this because it it definitely is true that I was wrong about how things would go with Durham, but while I do feel this odd weight of disappointment and a bit of confusion over how things have gone and how things have ended up with Durham, I'm not overall disappointed or confused or upset or bummed out by it. I'm not, not in the slightest. I'm not bummed out in the slightest. I have a, I have a bit of a weight of disappointment where I'm like, ah, oh, man, that's not what I thought would happen. But it doesn't feel like a bad end or a, um, I'm not, I'm just not upset about it at all. Um, I'm like, it just seems like, Oh, I thought it would go differently. Huh? So what is this? I am really stoked about it and I'm giddy and I ha I can't stop thinking about the report. I've, I've enjoyed reading it and, um, I'm not all the way through it. Um, I'm really excited about it. And there's so much that I have found in this report already and i'm not through it but there's so much i found right here in it that I, I i um it struck me as i was going through it probably about a dozen or so pages into it i started thinking wow this is a record this is there there is so much um there's so much information in this that is now a matter of record not speculation not not um, hypothesis, not theory. Here we have the record. And I think people are going to be going back to it over and over and over again, just like the Horowitz report has gone back to and the Mueller report has gone back to um, and various other ones. I think that this is, I think the Durham report is something we're going to reference a lot going into the future. And like Durham's other filings, and indictments, Durham is telling the story of the events that he was tasked to investigate. And that means there's nuggets of information all throughout it. 
tons. It's what Durham it's what Durham puts down and what he doesn't put down. And what he does put down, it's how he says it, how he frames it, the exact words he used, the things he chooses to pull out of all the information that he has. Um, I think every line is very, very, very intentional. The consequences that'll come from this report, I think, are massive. It's 300 plus pages of ammo, figuratively, against the deep state. It's meticulously investigated, logged, compiled, organized, and now presented to the AG and to Congress. I truly believe it's 300 pages of pain, 300 plus pages of pain, for them. And at this point, I want to show you this drop. This is a drop. Oops. Open this up again. This drop is from, I know it's a little small right here, but this drop is 1367. It's from May 14th. Um, 2020, is it 2020 or 2018? 2018. And um, it's, yeah, 2018. That's the Durham Punisher skull. On the day his report is made public, it's a, it's a five-year delta for this skull and this drop. And this drop says... Pain coming. Hugh. Five-year delta, exactly, for this drop. And that just re... I, I actually thought it... I was thought of this before I went and found the drop. <laughs> this line. I thought of this before I went and found the drop, and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> so, like, it really is. All of us, all of us, guys, we're right about some things. We're wrong about others. And we all just took a massive step towards finding out what we got right and what we got wrong with the delivery of this report. And I love that. Um, that's part of that's partly why I don't I'm not upset at all that I was wrong about how things would go with Durham and his indictments, because I know that I'm wrong about some things, and it's a lot of fun finding out what I'm wrong about. Because at the same time, I'm finding out what I'm right about and I'm discovering new information that paints the picture and makes things more clear and um, gives me more hope. Um, so while this isn't how I would have scripted it, I, I don't doubt that this is how it was scripted and that this is how things are supposed to go. Trump is absolutely vindicated by the Durham report. We can't miss that. We can't miss that. So are a number of others, Paige, Flynn, and others. And that's why I say that Monday was a damn good day. And I know that flies in the face of what conservative incorporated media, um, or at least some, are saying and other folks. But I got to say, anybody who is um, blackpilling and dooming over the Durham report, I'm just tuning them out. I'm just tuning them out, guys. And... I can't tell the difference between a hostile shill troll who's trying to doom and black pill and distract and take away wins and someone who is just um, doesn't understand it or is struggling to understand it or something um, or doesn't value the things that I value. So I'm ignoring all that. I know that's out there, but I'm ignoring it all. And we're going to focus on this report. I've been doing a thread on True Social and on Twitter going through the report page by page. And 
that's what I'm going to continue to do. It's extremely long thread. It may be a really bad idea. It may be a bad idea for me to do a thread this long. Um, it may break and, um, thread readers may fail to load it all. And you know, it, but I, I just had this thought that I am going to treat this as what I think it is, which is an extremely important document in this, in this war. So let's get into it. This will probably take, it'll definitely take today, all of today's show. And I'm sure Friday's show. And then we'll see where we're at after that. Um, may have to do some extra shows um, to get it all in. But we're going to do it. And I think going down the road in the future, we're going to be thankful that we spent the time really getting to understand and know this report rather than react to it. All right. Report on matters related to intelligence activities and investigations arising out of the 2016 presidential campaigns. That's the title of this. It's not titled Durham's final report, but it, that's the title. It's by special counsel John Durham, submitted pursuant to 28 CFR 600.8C, which is the statute that creates the special counsel. May 12th. There are other deltas for May 12th. And if you are into, I went ahead and grabbed some drops. I was thinking about going into them. The May 12th one, if you go and search for drops from May 12th, which is the date that Durham submitted this to the AG, wow, look at what we find. We find a post about from Technofog, Flynn update. Looks like Judge Sullivan, like that's that's within the scope of Durham. That's a delta hit. Um and then right here, another Punisher skull, May 12th, dropped 4217. So a three-year delta on the day that Durham submitted the, his report to the AG and a five-year delta on the day that it was submitted to the public. Probably just a coincidence, right? It's a two-part report, unclassified report, and then a, a classified appendix which is some two dozen pages long, um, sets forth principal findings and recommendations concerning the matters that were the subject of our review. The principal report is confidential, but contains no classified information, which sets it up to be made not confidential anymore. Uh, Durham, can, I mean, uh, A.G. Uh, Garland can make that, that portion available to the public, and I bet he does. The classified appendix likewise has been coordinated with the same agencies for classification purposes. After that introduction here, which where we're at, let me, I'm going to bounce back and forth between the actual document and that. So here's his letter saying we got, we're giving this to you. Durham writes right here. Finally, we want to thank you, meaning AG Garland. Finally, we want to thank you and your office for permitting our inquiry to proceed independently and without interference, as you assured the members of the Senate Judiciary Committee would be the case during your confirmation hearings to become Attorney General of the United States. Remember, we had some stories going around many months ago about how Durham's being blocked by A.G. Garland, DOJ won't let Durham do his job, 
something is blocking Durham dropping more indictments. It's probably AG Garland. Well, not according to John Durham. Not according to John Durham. Here's a table of con contents for this thing. We've got 316 pages to go through. Oh, this is going to be fun. Introduction. This report is submitted to the Attorney General pursuant to 28 CFR 600.8C, which states that, quote, at the conclusion of the special counsel's work, he shall provide the Attorney General a confidential report explaining the prosecution or declination decisions reached by the special counsel. In addition to the confidential report required by Section 600.8C, the Attorney General has directed the special counsel, quote, to the maximum extent possible and consistent with the law and policies and practices of the Department of Justice shall submit to the Attorney General a final report and such interim reports as he deems appropriate in a form that will permit public dissemination. Small hope that this is just an interim report, but I think it's the final. This report is in fulfillment of these requirements and sets forth our principal findings and recommendations concerning the matters that were the subject of our review. Section 1 briefly describes the scope of our investigation, and Section 2 is an executive summary of this report. Section 3 describes laws and department and federal uh, bureau, policies of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, we're actually going to skip that section because we don't need to go through those, although I do think it's important, and you'll understand as we go through it why Durham included all that stuff. Section 4 summarizes facts and evidence. Sweet. And we found and described our um, that they found, and we, we describe our prosecution and declination decisions. In Section 5, we provide some observa observations on issues pertinent to our areas of inquiry. In March 2019, Special Counsel Robert S. Mueller III concluded his investigation into the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election, quote, including any links or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the Trump campaign. That investigation, quote, did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. Following Special Counsel Mueller's report, on May 13th, excuse me, 2019, Attorney General Barr, quote, directed United States Attorney John Durham to conduct a preliminary review in certain matters related to the 2016 presidential election campaign. Do you see it's the next day? Or, well, not the next day, but it's like shortly after, May 13th. Boom. It's almost like, it's almost a delta for the day that he submitted his report, right? Because this is May 13th, so four years later, almost to the day. He submits it back to the AG. And that review, quote, subsequently developed into a criminal investigation. On February 6, 2020, the Attorney General appointed Mr. Durham as special attorney to the Attorney General pursuant to 28 U.S.C. 515. On October 19, 2020, the Attorney General determined that, quote, in light of the extraordinary circumstances related to these matters, the public interest warrants Mr. Durham continuing this investigation pursuant to the powers and independence afforded by the special counsel regulations, relying on the authority vested in the Attorney General, including 28 U.S.C. 509, 510, and 515. The Attorney General ordered the appointment of the special counsel 
in order to discharge the attorney general's responsibility to provide supervision and management of the Department of Justice and to ensure a full and thorough investigation of these matters. The order stated, quote, The special counsel is authorized to investigate whether any federal official employee or any other person or entity violated the law in connection with the intelligence, counterintelligence, or law enforcement activities directed at the 2016 presidential campaigns. Individuals associated with those campaigns and individuals associated with the administration of President Donald J. Trump, including, but not limited to, Crossfire Hurricane and the investigation of Special Counsel Robert S. Mueller III. If the special counsel believes it is necessary and appropriate, the order, further, the order further provided the special counsel is authorized to prosecute federal crimes arising from his investigation of these matters. The order also provided that 28 CFR 600.4 to 600.1 are apl- applicable to the special counsel. Now, um, and thank you guys for the rants. I see you guys rants. Thank you very much. I want I want I want to tear through this thing as fast as possible. So no, I'm going to have commentary, but thank you guys very much. I see them and I really appreciate it. Um, ah, ah, I clicked, I clicked, uh, accidentally clicked a link within the uh, report. Now we got to wait for it to load. <laughs> now it's got to load again. All right, let's scroll down. Come on. I got to make sure I don't do that because do this because this document is huge. And so like when you click out of it or something or click actually click a link in it, it takes it forever to uh, load back up. All right. Now, this is one of the first things that people have keyed in on here. This footnote, you always got to check the footnotes. This one right here is especially interesting. We have not interpreted the order as directing us to investigate the department's handlings, uh, handling of matters associated with the investigation of former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server. For a review of those matters, see Office of the Inspector General U.S. Department of Justice, a review of various actions by the FBI and DOJ in advance of the 2016 election, published June 2018. We also have not interpreted the order as directing us to consider the handling of the investigation into President Trump opened by the FBI on March 16th, 2017. See FBI EC from counterintelligence investigation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Finally, we have not interpreted the order as directing us to consider matters addressed by the former United States attorney for the District of Utah, John Huber or by the former United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Missouri, his name escapes me right now, other than those relating to Crossfire Hurricane or the FISA applications targeting Carter Page. For accounts of these matters in the news media, he pointed to the news media here, which I thought interesting. Instead of pointing us to some other DOJ or OIG document, he pointed us to news articles about these things which means it might be worth going and reading those news articles for hints about where those investigations are going. Cause I don't think he chose these specific news articles at random. I think he chose them purposefully. So that's a, that's a rabbit trail to run down at a different time. So a lot of, I saw some posts about people um, being upset that Durham wasn't investigating Hillary's private email server. Um, I think it's pretty understandable how he didn't read 
or interpret the special counsel order to extend all the way to the private email server investigation. I do wish he had, but I can understand why he wouldn't and how he wouldn't. I think it could be seen as a stretch, even though it's definitely connects and uh, to what he was investigating and what he was investigating, investigating involved out of the issue of the private email server. But while he says he didn't interpret it as an order to investigate it, he sure does mention it a lot. He sure just does mention the investigation into Clinton's private email server a lot in this report. For the review of those matters, it sends you to the OIG. Next, he says he didn't interpret it as an order directing us to examine the FBI um, order to investigate Trump. This right here, this issue right here, you guys know that I, I often say that the FBI was never investigating Trump. DOJ was never out to get Trump. FBI was never out to get Trump. Trump was never under investigation. And I still believe that. But the one time that he was, there is one moment. There is one moment in Trump's presidential, uh, presidential, um, whatchamacallit, his term. There was one time during his term that the FBI was investigating him for a moment. And it was when Trump fired Comey and McCabe was temporarily acting FBI director. And McCabe opened an investigation into Trump. And the next day, the attorney general appointed special counsel Mueller. And it was taken away from Andy McCabe. So for this sliver, this day, that Andy McCabe had power. He tried to, he launched an investigation into Trump, which special counsel Mueller immediately took over and Mueller did not investigate Trump. Mueller investigated the Trump campaign and persons in it. So on December 21st, 2020, the attorney general delegated certain authority to use classified information to the special counsel. Um, John Harold was talking about that last night on Eye of the Storm. And I want to go ahead and mention this. If you guys want to see just how many connections there are between the timing of the Durham report and the drops, go watch last night's Eye of the Storm. So this episode, I think it's the longest episode they've ever done. They've been learning from me and uh, Burning Bright on, on Sunday nights. And they decided to challenge us and went three and a half hours last night. The first half of the half of it, first third, first third, first half is um is an interview with uh with Patel Patriot with John, and it's good. They cover a lot of really interesting stuff. They talk about devolution and Q. It's great. That segment of the show is is great. If you go about, I don't know if it's halfway through. Actually, I'm just gonna go ahead and find it. It's whenever John goes away. So whenever John goes away, that's when it switches. Man, John was there for two hours. I can't believe they they endured. I know what it's like to be on a show with John for two hours. He practically took over their show, by the way. He just kept, he kept getting them to let him control the screen, which they did. Fools. All right. Anyway, so two two hours fifteen minutes in. Two hours fifteen minutes in is when if you want to skip all the John stuff. Two hours fifteen minutes in is when. Uh, Stormy and Absolute started going after uh, the drops and the report and all the connections and Trump truths. It was great. 
It was fantastic. I could not sleep last night. I had to finish the show. Uh, stayed up way too late watching this. It's Eye of the Storm, episode 28. You want to see some cute connections to the to the report? Go to that show and watch it. It's over on Badlands Media. All right, back to the report. After the inauguration of President Biden, Attorney General Garland met with the Office of Special Counsel. The office, in this report, they're going to refer to the, he refers to the Durham Special Counsel as the office. So anytime in here where you see the office, he's talking about Durham's special counsel. The office very much appreciates the support consent, consistent with his testimony during his confirmation that the attorney general has provided to our efforts and the department's willingness to allow us to operate independently. Again, the news that Garland was blocking Durham was fake. Durham, Durham could tell us all about it right here, guys. Obviously, Durham has no problem investigating and exposing FBI corruption, uh, unethical behavior, failure to follow guidelines and policies. He has no problem doing that. And he's not under the control of Garland. He could right here throw Garland completely under the bus and tell us all about how Garland got in the way or anybody else at DOJ got in the way of his work. He's not doing that because they didn't get in the way of his work. The special counsel, which should make you think about just exactly who Garland works for. The special counsel structured the investigation in view of his power and authority, quote, to exercise all investigative and prosecutorial functions of the United States attorney. Like a U.S. attorney's office, the special counsel's office considered in the course of its investigation a range of classified and unclassified information available to the FBI and other government agencies. A substantial amount of information and evidence was immediately available to the office at the inception of the investigation as a result of numerous congressional investigations and special counsel Mueller's investigation. You know how there are people who tell you that these congressional hearings and investigations don't matter? And you know how there are people who tell you that special counsels don't matter? And you know how there are people who tell you that special counsel Mueller it never should have been a special counsel and that investigation never should have happened and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they're wrong. According to Durham, anyway, the examinations by the office of the inspector general of the crossfire hurricane investigation, the foreign intelligence surveillance act applications, targeting Carter page and other matters provided additional evidence and information as did an internal report prepared by the FBI's inspection division. The office reviewed the intelligence, counterintelligence, and law enforcement activities directed at the 2016 Trump campaign and individuals associated either with the campaign or with the Trump administration in its early stages. The office structured its work around evidence for possible use in prosecutions of federal crimes, assuming that one or more crimes were identified that warranted prosecution. The office exercises judgment regarding what to investigate, but did not investigate every public report of an alleged violation of law in connection with the intelligence and law enforcement and law enforcement activities directed at the 2016 presidential campaigns. Not I'm going to say, guys, not every public report of an alleged violation of law related to the 2016 presidential campaigns is true. Not every allegation is true. 
or based in some evidence. And Durham ignored the fake news and the fake allegations and went for the ones that had uh, had the most merit to them, or at least seemed that way. In addition to the special counsel, the office has been staffed by experienced FBI and Internal Revenue Service Criminal Investigation Division agents, department attorneys, and prosecutors, support personnel, and contractor employees. The office's investigation was broad and extensive. It included investigative work both domestically and overseas. It entailed obtaining large document productions from businesses, firms, government agencies, universities, political campaigns, internet service providers, telephone companies, and individuals. The office interviewed hundreds of individuals, many on multiple occasions. The office conducted the majority of interviews in classified settings. For some interviewees and their counsel, security clearances were needed to be obtained. They interviewed them in SCIFs. They interviewed them in uh, safe work environments, SWEs. The office conducted interviews in person and via video link, with the vast majority of the latter occurring after the COVID-19 pandemic-related closures began in March 2020. One thing that we often lose sight of, and I will say I do think that the Durham report is on time. I think it's on time. Obviously, by the drops, it hit those deltas. And it didn't just hit one delta. It hit more than one on multiple days. We got the Durham report when it was intended to be released. The plan is on schedule. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the Durham report and Durham's work and its special counsel was affected by the lockdowns and the regulations and everything else that went on with the COVID-19 pandemic and all that other stuff. Just like the COVID-19 lockdowns and everything that went along with it in 2020, just like that stuff was used to interrupt all of our lives and to uh, affect the election in favor of the Democrats. It was also used to hinder Durham's investigation. Because it prevented him from contacting people, sitting down with people, travel, like all of that stuff also interfered with Durham. So he had to over him and his office had to overcome that and still stay on schedule. And they did. Although a substantial majority of individuals voluntarily, voluntarily cooperated with the office. Again, the office means special counsel. Some only provided information under subpoena or grant of immunity. Which tells you. Durham granted immunity to some people in order to get information. Wonder who. Some individuals who, in our our view, had important and relevant information about the topics under investigation refused to be interviewed or otherwise cooperate with the office. As of April 2023, with two trials completed, the office has conducted more than 480 interviews, obtained and reviewed more than 1 million documents, consisting of more than 6 million pages, served more than 190 subpoenas under the auspices of grand juries, executed seven search warrants, 
obtained five orders for communications records under 18 USC 2703D. That's um, telecommunications. That's like uh, phones and things like that. Um, and made one request to a foreign government under a mutual legal assistance treaty. Now, if you compare this tabulation here, this tabulation, I'm going to scroll down to where I grabbed it. Um, right here. This threat, if you want to follow my thread on Twitter or on Truth Social, I will say that the Twitter one is the is the best one to follow just because of how Twitter keeps threads connected together. On uh, True Social, you got to scroll all the way down, click my very last post in the thread, and then it will stack all of the uh, the previous truths out so that you don't see everybody else's comments in between. You'll see all of my posts. But on Twitter, it keeps everything together. Um, but if you want to follow this thread, here is the stack of uh, data of the actions taken by the special counsel. And if you compare this to what uh, special counsel Mueller's investigation did, I don't, I didn't pull it up and save it right now. Um, but special counsel Mueller's investigation racked up way bigger numbers than this. Way bigger numbers. More search warrants, more telecommunication orders, more requests to foreign governments, more subpoenas, more interviews, more trials, more indictments, Special Counsel Mueller investigation did far more as far as these things go. One thing that stood out to me between the stats, though, is that grand juries, Durham didn't say how many grand juries he ran. Mueller did. And I know for a fact that Durham ran more grand juries than he got indictments. Yet, I don't believe he put anything in front of a grand jury without expecting to get an indictment. So it, to me, it leaves me wondering, did Durham get run some grand juries and get indictments, but then pass those indictments on? Or did he run those in grand, grand juries just to get subpoenas from them. Um, I don't know, but it's interesting that he doesn't name how many grand juries he ran. I think there's something to that. I think there's something to the fact that he doesn't mention exactly how many grand juries he ran. The office would like to express its appreciation to, among others, the FBI's Office of General Counsel, Inspection Division, um, et cetera, et cetera, information officer, the NSD, the JMD entities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He mentions here the in this footnote, the FBI's Office of General Counsel produced more than 6.5 million pages of docu documentation in response to our multiple requests. We note that they did so at a time when it, they were coping with personnel shortages due to COVID-19. Moreover, FBI leadership made it clear to its personnel that they were to cooperate fully with our inquiry, which in all but a few instances involves, involving some personnel in the counterintelligence division proved to be the case. So some people in the counterintelligence division didn't want to work with Durham, but the rest did. And FBI leadership made it clear to the personnel that they had to cooperate. Um, trust Ray. What can I say? Trust Ray. If Durham wanted to throw Chris Ray under the bus or tell us about how the FBI leadership got in the way of his investigation, here was the time to do it. He doesn't do that. 
In those few instances in which individuals refused to cooperate, the FBI leadership intervened to urge those individuals to agree to be interviewed. Similarly, and this is a shocker, the Central Intelligence Agency and the National Security Agency made their employees available for interview, including former CIA Director John Brennan and former NSA Director Mike Rogers, who voluntarily made themselves available for interviews. The office has concluded in its investigation, or excuse me, the office has concluded its investigation into whether, quote, any federal official, employee, or any other person or entity violated the law in connection with the intelligence, counterintelligence, or law enforcement activities directed at the 2016 presidential campaigns, individuals associated with those campaigns, and individuals associated with the administration of President Donald J. Trump. This report is a summary. So the special counsel has concluded its investigation. It contains in the office's judgment that information necessary to account for the special counsel's prosecution and declination decisions and describe the investigation's main factual results. It then sets forth some additional observations. The office made its criminal charging decisions based solely on the facts and evidence developed in the investigation and without fear of or favor to any person. What is stated below in the Mueller report is equally true for our investigation. This report describes actions and events the special counsel's office found to be supported by the evidence collected in our investigation. In some instances, the report points out the absence of evidence or conflicts in the evidence about a particular fact or event. In other instances, when substantial, credible evidence enabled the office to reach a conclusion with confidence, the report states that the investigation established that certain actions or events occurred. A statement that the investigation did not establish particular facts does not mean there was no evidence of those facts. Conducting this investigation required us to consider U.S. criminal laws, the constitutional protections our system provides to individuals, and the high burden placed on the government to prove every element of a crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Moreover, the law does not always make a person's bad judgment, even horribly bad judgment, standing alone, a crime. Nor does the law criminalize all unseemly or unethical conduct that political campaigns might undertake for tactical advantage, absent a violation of a particular federal criminal statute. Finally, in almost all cases, the government is required to prove a person's actual criminal intent, not mere negligence or recklessness. Before that person's fellow citizens can lawfully find him or her guilty of a crime, the office's adherence to these principles explains in numerous instances why conduct of deserving of censure or disciplinary action did not lead the office to seek criminal charges. I think we can take from that that there are folks that engaged in unethical, unseemly, bad conduct that doesn't make it criminal. They may be deserving of censure or disciplinary action, 
but that doesn't mean they're deserving of being charged with a federal crime. There are also reasons why, in examining politically charged and high-profile issues such as these, the office must exercise and has exercised special care. First, juries can bring strongly held views to the courtroom in criminal trials involving political subject matters, and those views can in turn affect the likelihood of obtaining a conviction, separate and apart from the strength of the actual evidence and despite a court's best efforts to impanel a fair and impartial jury. I'm thinking of Michael Sussman. Not so much Danchenko, but Michael Sussman. Second, when the prosecutors believe that they can obtain a conviction, there are some instances in which it may not be advisable to expend government time and resources on a criminal prosecution, particularly where it would create the appearance, even if unfounded, that the government is seeking to criminalize the behavior of political opponents or punish the activities of a specific political party or campaign. At the same time, the prosecutors should not shy away from pursuing justifiable cases solely due to the popularity of the defendant or the controversial nature of the government's case. The principles of federal prosecution provide the following pertinent guidelines on this point, which inform the special counsel's charging and declination decisions. Quote, where the law and facts create a sound prosecutable case, the likelihood of an acquittal due to unpopularity of some aspect of the prosecution or because of the overwhelming popularity of the defendant or his her cause is not a factor prohibiting prosecution. For example, in a civil rights case or a case involving an extremely popular political figure, it might be clear that the evidence of guilt viewed objectively by an unbiased fact finder would be sufficient to obtain and sustain a conviction. Yet the prosecutor might reasonably doubt, based on the circumstances, that the jury would convict. In such a case, despite his her negative assessment of the likelihood of a guilty verdict, based on factors extraneous to an objective view of the law and the facts, the prosecutor may properly conclude that it is necessary and appropriate to commence or recommend prosecution and allow the criminal process to operate in accordance with the principles set forth here. The decision of whether to bring criminal charges in any given matter thus is complicated one that is neither entirely subjective or mechanistic. If this report and the outcome of the special counsel's investigation leave some with the impression that injustices or misconduct have gone unaddressed, it is not because the office concluded that no such injustices or misconduct occurred. It is rather because not every injustice or transgression amounts to a criminal offense. And criminal prosecutors are tasked exclusively with investigating and prosecuting violations of U.S. criminal laws. And even where prosecutors believe a crime occurred based on all of the facts and information they have gathered, it is their duty only to bring criminal charges when the evidence that the government reasonably believes is admissible in court proves the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. 
I notice here he italicized admissible in court, giving it emphasis. I think there's a reason for that. I think that's an indicator that, hey, all the stuff that I have, I can't bring it all. It's not admissible into court, not under the circumstances as they are. And that also helps to explain other indictments, uh, why other more indictments didn't come from this. Both attorneys, General Barr and Garland, have stated that one of their most important priorities is to ensure the proper functioning and administration of federal law by government agencies. Indeed, the first goal of the department's current strategic plan is to uphold the rule of law. Quote, we will continue our work to ensure that the public's view of the department is objective, impartial, and insulated from political influence. The Justice Department's foundational norms include the principle that exercise of discretion, independence from improper influence, treating like cases alike, and an unwavering commitment to following the facts and the law. Reaffirming and or necessary, strengthening the Justice Department policies that are foundational to the rule of law, many of which were initially adopted in the aftermath of Watergate, is essential to this effort. In the aftermath of Crossfire Hurricane and the FISA surveillance of Page, the Department has adopted other important policies. We discussed them and possible additional changes in portions of the report below. That concludes the first section of this. The next section is the executive summary. And by the way, there could be a comment over here on this where is emphasis admissible in court. A number of reasons why things he had access to or were, was aware of, he couldn't admit in court right now. It could be part of other investigations. It could be national security info that um, while Durham has the power to declassify, it would not be wise for him to declassify it right now and use it in public. Um, it could be that admitting that evidence in court is not a good idea because it would it would reveal other things or jeopardize other investigations or prosecutions. Um, it could be not admissible because it would reveal uh, intelligence gathering information or techniques, um, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of reasons why it may not be admissible in court. Um, it could be that it's hearsay and it could be there's a number of things that are hearsay and it lines up and you're like, yeah, I think that's hearsay and I can't use it in court, but I still think it's true and accurate, but it's still hearsay. So I can't use it. Um, it could be that it's, he needs testimony from certain people who are refusing to testify, who are refusing to say what they know. So he can't get it in. Before we get to the executive summary, I am going to take a, uh, I'm going to run upstairs and grab more coffee. It'll be a really short break. Um, and grit there. I didn't, I didn't, uh, prepare any music, but it makes sense to me that I'm going to go and grab I should go and grab coffee before I come back to this. Um, here we go. Yeah, I'm going to do this. Uh, yeah, I had a comment. And I just lost it, which is a uh, a sign that I need coffee. 
All right. Hope y'all are liking this so far. And uh, all you nerds, all you nerds, can't believe all you nerds are here. We're going to take just a couple minutes, go grab coffee. I'm right back and we'll go back. We'll go into the executive summary of this thing.
Okay, I'm back. And thank you guys for being here. Hope you're enjoying it. Um, I hope you uh, are down to diving into this for the next several shows. I think it'll be worth it. Is my my opinion is that I mean honestly, it's part of it's for me. Um, to be to be real honest with you guys, I want to go through this every page of it on the show for me, so that I can commit it and know it better. Um, so at the same time I'm reading this to you, I want you to understand that I'm also learning and committing it to memory and, uh, yeah. So, so for me, this is, uh, like it helped it, this is helping me out and I'm bidding, bidding from it. And I hope you guys are too. Um, if you want a shorter version of it, if you just want to go read it yourself, go read it yourself. I like, I had the thought that, uh, like somebody left a comment on my thread on true social or, or Twitter. They were like, why are you doing this? People can just go read it themselves if they want to. Like, I hope they do. I hope they do. <laughs> That's what I want. That's what I want. Um, and, uh, yeah. So we're going to, we're going to keep going with this. Let's go to the executive summary. There is a section we will skip later on. It's an important section and I'll explain, we'll skip it because it's, uh, tedious and we won't get that much out of it out of reading that section but there's a it comes back up and is referenced by Durham over and over again later and that's why it's in there so all right executive summary the public record actually I want to say one more thing <laughs> sorry uh, I want to say one more thing and I could I could save this for later, but I'll just go ahead and say it. Uh, yeah, I'll say this right now. I regard this as the record of all of this stuff. Like I don't re regard this as Durham's opinion or a mostly true document or mostly accurate. I trust that John Durham, given his history, given what I know about him his experience, his, uh, his other investigations and prosecutions, um, his speeches, um, articles about him, what, um, others have said who worked with him, um, looking at people that were part of his special counsel, his, knowing his filings and his indictments. I, and then knowing the drops, I regard this as the record of what happened. So everything in this thing, I'm like what Durham found. I regard this as hard, hard confirmed factual evidence. This is the record. And so part of my excitement with this and the way I'm treating it this way is because I think this is definitive. I think what's in this is absolutely definitive. This is what we know. We all have had beliefs and hypotheses and theories, including me. And, but this are the, these are the facts and the evidence. This is what we, this is the, our opportunity to know. And a lot of it we already believed or suspected or hypothesized or whatever. Now we know. And we can reference this report. It's why we know it to be true. Executive summary. 
The public record contains a substantial body of information relating to former President Trump's and the Trump Organization's relationships with Russian businesses. Russian business people and Russian officials, as well as separate evidence of Russia's attempts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. These and related subjects are well documented in the careful examinations undertaken by the department's Office of the Inspector General of issues of related to the FBI's crossfire hurricane investigation and its use of Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act authorities. Former FBI Director Robert Mueller, as detailed in his report entitled, quote, Report on the Investigation into Russian Interference in the 2016 Presidential Election issued in March of 2019, and three, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence entitled Russian Active Measures Campaigns and Interference in 2016 Election. The scope of these earlier inquiries, the amount of important information gathered, and the contributions they have made to our understanding of Russian election interference efforts are a tribute to the diligent work and dedication of those charged with the responsibility of conducting them. Our review and investigation, in turn, has focused on separate but related questions, including the following. Was there adequate predication for the FBI to open the crossfire, crossfire hurricane investigation from its inception on July 31st, 2016, as a full counterintelligence and foreign agents registration act investigation, given the requirements of the attorney general's guidelines for FBI domestic operations and FBI policies relating to the use of least intrusive investigative tools necessary. It's a very long sentence. What he's saying is, should they have opened Crossfire Hurricane? Should the FBI have opened Crossfire Hurricane? That's the question. Was the opening of Crossfire Hurricane as a full investigation on July 31st, 2016, consistent with how the FBI handled other intelligence it had received prior to July 31st, 2016, concerning attempts by foreign interests to influence the Clinton and other campaigns? Similarly, did the FBI properly consider other highly classified significant intelligence it received at virtually the same time as that used to predicate Crossfire Hurricane, but which related not to the Trump campaign, but rather to the purported Clinton campaign plan, quote, to vilify Donald Trump by stirring up a scandal claiming interference by Russian security services? which might have shed light on some of the Russia information the FBI was receiving from third parties, including the Steele dossier, the Alpha Bank allegations, and confidential human source reporting. If not, were any provable federal crimes committed in failing to do so? Was there evidence that the actions of any FBI personnel or third parties relating to the Crossfire Hurricane investigation violated any federal criminal statutes, including the prohibition against making false statements to federal officials? If so, was that, the, was that evidence sufficient to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? Was there evidence that the actions of the FBI or department personnel in providing or incomplete information, providing false or incomplete information, to the FISA court violate any federal criminal statutes? If so, was there evidence sufficient to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? Our findings and conclusions regarding these and related questions are sobering. Next section. State of intelligence community information regarding Trump and Russia prior to the opening of Crossfire Hurricane. 
As set forth in greater detail in Section 4A3B before the initial receipt by the FBI Headquarters of Information from Australia on July 28, 2016, concerning comments reportedly made in a tavern on May 6, 2016 by George Papadopoulos, an unpaid foreign policy advisor to the Trump campaign, the government possessed no verified intelligence reflecting that Trump or the Trump campaign was involved in a conspiracy or collaborative relationship with officials of the Russian government. Again, no verified intelligence. Indeed, based on the evidence gathered in the multiple exhaustive and costly federal investigations of these matters, including the instant investigation, neither U.S. law enforcement nor the intelligence community appears to have possessed any actual evidence of collusion in their holdings at the commencement of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. None. None. Not in the law enforcement community, not in the intelligence community, none. No actual evidence of collusion existed at any time prior to Crossfire Hurricane or at the opening of Crossfire Hurricane. The opening. As set forth in greater detail in Section 4, the record in this matter reflects that upon receipt of unevaluated intelligence from Australia, the FBI swiftly opened the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. In particular, at the direction of Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, all roads lead to McCabe, Deputy Assistant Director of Counterintelligence Peter Strzok opened Crossfire Hurricane immediately. Strzok, at a minimum, had pronounced hostile feelings towards Trump. The matter was opened as a full investigation without ever having spoken to the persons who provided the information. Further, the FBI did so without, one, any significant review of its own intelligence databases, two, collection and examination of any relevant intelligence from other U.S. intelligence entities, Three, interviews of witnesses essential to understand the raw information I have received. Or four, using any of the standard analytical tools typically employed by the FBI in evaluating raw intelligence. Had it done so, again, as set out in sections 4A, 3B, and C, the FBI would have learned that their own experienced Russia analyst had no information about Trump being involved with the Russian leadership officials, nor were other since others in sensitive positions at the CIA, the NSA, and the Department of State aware of such evidence concerning the subject. In addition, the FBI records prepared by Strzok in February and March 2017 show that at the time of the opening of Crossfire Hurricane, the FBI had no information in its holding indicating that at any time during the campaign, anyone in the Trump campaign had been in contact with any Russian intelligence officials. The speed and manner in which the FBI opened and investigated Crossfire Hurricane during the presidential election season, based on raw, unanalyzed, and uncorroborated intelligence, also reflected a noticeable departure from how it approached prior matters involving possible attempted foreign election interference plans aimed at the Clinton campaign. As described in Section 4B in the 18 months leading up to the 2016 election, the FBI was required to deal with a number of proposed investigations that had the potential of affecting the election. In each of those instances, the FBI moved with considerable caution, 
In one such matter discussed in Section 4B1, FBI headquarters and department officials required defensive briefings to be provided to Clinton and other officials or candidates who appeared to be the targets of foreign interference. In another, the FBI elected to end an investigation after one of its longtime and valuable CHSs went beyond what was authorized and made an improper and possibly illegal financial contribution to the Clinton campaign on behalf of a foreign entity as a precursor to a much larger donation being contemplated. We'll get to that one later. And in a third, the Clinton Foundation matter. Both senior FBI and department officials placed restrictions on how those matters were were to be handled, such that essentially no investigative activities occurred for months leading up to the election. These examples are also markedly different from the FBI's actions with respect to other highly significant intelligence it received from a trusted foreign source pointing to a Clinton campaign plan to vilify Trump by tying him to Vladimir Putin so as to divert attention from her own concerns relating to her use of a private email server. Unlike the FBI's opening of a full investigation of unknown members of the Trump campaign based on raw, uncorroborated information, in this separate matter involving a purported Clinton campaign plan, the FBI never opened any type of inquiry, issued any taskings, employed any analytical personnel, or produced any analytical products in connection with the information. This lack of action was despite the fact that the significance of the Clinton plan intelligence was such as to have prompted the director of the CIA to brief the president, vice president, attorney general, director of the FBI, and other senior government officials about its content within days of its receipt. It was also of enough importance for the CIA to send a formal written referral memorandum to Director Comey and to Deputy Assistant Director of the FBI's Counterintelligence Division, Peter Strzok, for their consideration and action. The investigative referral provided examples of information the Crossfire Hurricane Fusion Cell had, quote, gleaned to date. The Crossfire Hurricane Investigation. Within days after opening Crossfire Hurricane, the FBI opened full investigations on members of the Trump campaign team, George Papadopoulos, Carter Page, Paul Manafort, and Michael Flynn. No defensive briefings were, were provided to Trump or anyone in the campaign concerning the information received from Australia that suggested there might be some type of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians, either prior to or after these investigations were open. Instead, the FBI began working on requests for the use of FISA authorities against Page and Papadopoulos. The effort, as related to Papadopoulos, proved unsuccessful. Similarly, the initial effort directed at Page was unsuccessful until the Crossfire Hurricane investigators first obtained what were designated as, quote, company intelligence reports generated by Christopher Steele. As set forth in sections 4D1B2, and three, and in brief, um, in brief below, the Steele reports were first provided to the FBI in early July 2016, but for unexplained reasons, only made their way to the Crossfire Hurricane investigators in mid-September. The reports were ostensibly 
assembled based on information provided to Steele and his company by a primary subsource who the FBI eventually determined in December 2016 was Igor Danchenko. Let's, I'm going to look up here and see if I want to grab this. I know about this referral memo. And re- there's a footnote here that's worth mentioning. In uh, regards to the referral memo, in his July 26, 2021 interview with the special counsel's office, supervisory analyst Brian Otten advised, that on the Friday before Labor Day, which was September 2nd, 2016, CIA personnel briefed Otten and Intelligence Section Chief Moffa and possibly FBI OGC Unit Chief One at FBI headquarters on the Clinton intelligence plan. Otten advised that at the time he wanted to see an actual investigative referral memo on the information. OSC report of interview of Brian Otten. Separately, we note that the masked identities used in this report do not necessarily correspond to those used in any other document, such as the OIG review. So what we learned from this footnote is that according to Brian Otten, he, Moffa, and maybe the Office of General Counsel unit chief met at FBI headquarters to get briefed on that Clinton intelligence plan that's in the referral memo. Otten wanted to see the actual referral memo on the information. I wonder if he ever saw it. All right, back to the, the rest of this reading. Our investigation determined that the Crossfire Hurricane investigators did not and could not corroborate any of the substantive allegations contained in the Steele reporting. Nor was Steele able to produce corroboration for any of the reported allegations even after being offered a million dollars or more by the FBI for such corroboration. I want to drill into that because I remember when that news came out from the Danchenko trial that the FBI had offered Christopher Steele a million dollars to prove any of the allegations that were in his reports. I remember that fake news on the right wrote headlines and still do write headlines saying the FBI tried to pay Steele a million dollars for his reports. FBI offered Christopher Steele a million dollar reward for his false Steele reporting and all sorts of other clickbait. And that's wrong. At the time, based on the transcript and how it was said, we covered this on this show as the FBI said, Hey, yo, Christopher, if you can prove what's in your steel report, we'll give you a million dollars. And Christopher Steele couldn't prove it. Not even for a million dollars. That's how false the information was. And that's how little faith Christopher Steele had in it. Not even for a million dollars. It's not that it was a reward. It's that the FBI, by offering a million dollars to Christopher Steele, proved that even Christopher Steele knew that his information in the reports was bullshit. It was a very clever move. And it sucks that conservative incorporated media continues to write clickbait about it and get it completely wrong. 
Anyway, further, when interviewed by the FBI in January 2017, Danchenko also was an, unable to corroborate any of the substantive allegations in the reports. Rather, Danchenko characterized the information he provided to Steele as, quote, rumor and speculation and the product of casual conversation. Section 4D1.H describes other efforts undertaken by the Crossfire Hurricane investigators working on the Page FISA application. Those efforts included having CHSs record conversations with Page, Papadopoulos, and a senior Trump foreign policy advisor. I'm not sure who this was. I was kind of looking back at the time to see who were Trump's foreign policy advisors during the campaign. And I was trying to turn which one this might have been talking about, but I'm not sure. Um, anyway, the FBI's own records and the records establish that Page made multiple exculpatory statements to the unidentified CHS Deck One. But the Crossfire Hurricane investigators failed to make that information known to the department attorneys or to the FISA court. Gosh, that sounds criminal, but it might not be. I don't know. But it, man, it sounds criminal. The subject of the FISA was making exculp multiple exculpatory statements, and the Crossfire Hurricane investigators decided, eh, we're just not going to tell DOJ about those statements, and eh, we're not going to tell the FISA court about them. Page also made explicit statements refuting allegations contained in the steel reporting about his lack of any relationship with Paul Manafort. But the FBI failed to follow logical investigative leads related to those statements and to report to department lawyer department lawyers what they found. Similarly, multiple recordings of Papadopoulos were made by the CHS-1 and, as a, and a second CHS. I wonder if that's Trump. In which, well, no, Papadopoulos never talked to Trump, so it's, it must not be. In which Papadopoulos also made multiple exculpatory statements that were not brought to the attention of the department lawyers or the FISC, which indicates to you that the, peop the Crossfire Hurricane investigators weren't interested in any exculpatory statements made by their targets, were they? Furthermore, our investigation resulted in the prosecution and conviction of an FBI OGC, that's Office of General Counsel Attorney, for intentionally falsifying a document that was material in the FIC's consideration of one of the Page FISA applications, He's talking about Kevin Kleinsmith. And I'm going to say something about Kevin Kleinsmith. Kevin Kleinsmith, if you go and read his uh, guilty plea, you'll learn that Kevin Kleinsmith sent two emails. One was accurate and would have gotten Carter Page would have proved that Carter Page was an asset and uh, would have prevented the FISA application from going through. The other one was the altered one, where he falsified a portion of it. So he, get, in my opinion, in my estimation, he gave the people he was sending the email to the option, which one do you want? Here's one that leaves that information out. Here's one that includes that information. That's why he got a slap on the wrist. Because he sent two versions. And then when he met with Durham, he folded and told Durham everything. I think he told Durham who asked him to alter it. 
And I think he got cold feet. And so he sent two versions and let someone else make the decision about which one to use. See what I'm saying? I think he sent the real information unaltered because he didn't want to get in trouble, but he was told to alter it. And so he sent an altered version too. And I think that's why he got a slap on the wrist is because he did both those things. And because he, he, he met, he talked with Durham and entered a guilty plea. All right. The steel dossier in the spring of 2016, Perkins Coie, a U.S.-based international law firm acting as counsel to the Clinton campaign, retained Fusion GPS, a U.S.-based investigative firm, to conduct opposition research on Trump and his associates. In mid-May 2016, Glenn Simpson of Fusion GPS met with Steele in the United Kingdom and subsequently retained Steele and his firm, Orbis Business Intelligence, to investigate Trump's ties to Russia. Steele described himself as a former intelligence official for the British government. He was actually chief of the uh, Russia counter-intel operation in the UK. I just want to, everybody needs to keep it in mind about Christopher Steele. Christopher Steele was one of the top people in MI6 when it came to Russian counterintelligence. He was no lackey. He was not inexperienced. He was no goober. He was no idiot. Highly experienced, highly regarded, professional counter, Russian counterintelligence specialist. He knows what good intelligence is. He knows what good intelligence reports look like. And yet he produced the Steele report, which was anything but that, those things. Complete garbage. And Steele knew it, but he produced it anyway. Because he was being paid to by the, by the Clinton campaign, by Fusion GPS as an extension of the Clinton campaign. Beginning in July 2016 and continuing through December 2016, the FBI received a series of reports from Steele and Orbis that contained derogatory information about Trump concerning Trump's purported ties to Russia. By the way, I say that about Steele because you need to understand that he knew what he was doing. He knew what he was handing over. He knew it would never hold up, but she was never supposed to lose. These reports were colloquially referred to as the Steele dossier or Steele reports. As noted, it was not until mid-September that the Crossfire Hurricane investigators received several of the reports. Within days of their receipt, the unvetted and unverified steel reports were used to support probable cause in the FBI's FISA applications targeting Page, a U.S. citizen who, for a period of time, had been an advisor to Trump. As discussed later in the report, this was done at a time when the FBI knew that the, the same information Steele had provided to the FBI had also been fed to the media and others in Washington, D.C., in particular, one allegation contained in an undated steel report identified as 2016-095 described a, quote, well-developed conspiracy of cooperation between Trump and his campaign and senior Russian officials. This allegation would ultimately underpin the four FISA applications targeting Page. 
Specifically, the allegation stated, quote, speaking in confidence to a compatriot in late July 2016, Source E, an ethnic Russian and close associate of Republican U.S. presidential candidate Donald Trump, admitted that there was a well-developed conspiracy of cooperation between them and the Russian leadership. This was managed on the Trump side by the Republican candidate's campaign manager, Paul Manafort, who was used foreign influence policy advisor Carter Page and others as intermediaries. The two sides had a mutual interest in defeating Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, whom President Putin apparently both hated and feared. That right there, that Clinton feared, or that Putin feared Clinton, like this line right here, that's the tell to me. Like you read that and you're like, oh, bullshit. <laughs> All right, anyway. Um, footnotes here. Steele has testified in prior legal proceedings that between 87 and 2009, he was an intelligence professional working for the British government. That's how experienced he is. That's more than 20 years experience working for the British government in counter Russian intel. The dude knows what good intelligence looks like and what bad intelligence looks like. While still first provided several of his reports to the F his FBI handler in July 2016, remember, Steele was a CHS. He had an FBI handler. He gave some of his reports to his FBI handler in 2016. The transmittal of these reports to FBI headquarters and Crossfire Hurricane team, though, met an inexplicable delay. This delay is discussed in section 4D1B3. We'll get, so we'll get to that later. But it's interesting. I, I, this is the second time so far this has come up. And when we get to that, I'm wondering if there's Durham's going to give us a hint that there's something going on with Christopher Steele's handler. There's some reason why the handler didn't pass this information on to headquarters and Crossfire Hurricane team immediately. Wondering what it, I wonder what it was. All right. Next, Igor Danchenko, Steele's primary subsource. As noted, the FBI attempted over time to investigate and analyze the Steele reports, but ultimately was not able to confirm or corroborate any of the substantive allegations contained in those reports. In the context of these efforts, and as discussed in sections 4D1B9 and 10, the FBI learned that Steele relied primarily on a U.S.-based Russian national, Igor Danchenko, to collect information that ultimately formed the core allegations found in the reports. Specifically, our investigation discovered that Danchenko himself had told another person that he, Danchenko, was responsible for 80% of the intel and 50% of the analysis contained in the Steele dossier. I believe that's what he told Olga Galkina. He either said it to Olga Galkina or he said it to Chuck Dolan, but I think he said it to Olga. In December 2016, the FBI identified Danchenko as Steele's primary subsource. Danchenko agreed to meet with the FBI, and under the protection of an immunity letter, he and his attorney met with the Crossfire Hurricane investigators on January 24th, 25th, and 26th of 2017. 
thereafter from January 2017 through October 2020 as part of its efforts to determine the truth or falsity of specific information in the Steele reports. The FBI conducted multiple interviews of Danchenko regarding, among other things, the information he provided to Steele. As discussed in Section 4D1B9, during these interviews, Danchenko was unable to provide any corroborating evidence to support the Steele allegations and further described his interactions with his subsources as, quote, rumor and speculation and conversations of a casual nature. Significant parts of what Danchenko told the FBI were inconsistent with what Steele told the FBI during his prior interviews in October 2016 and September 2017. At no time, however, was the FISC, the FISA court, informed of these inconsistencies. Moreover, notwithstanding the repeated assertions in the page FISA applications that Steele's primary subsource was based in Russia, Danchenko for many years had lived in the Washington, D.C. area. After learning that Danchenko continued to live in the Washington area and had not left except for domestic and foreign travel, the FBI never corrected this assertion in the three subsequent page FISA renewal applications. Rather, beginning in March 2017, the FBI engaged Danchenko as a CHS and began making regular financial payments to him for information, none of which corroborated Steele's reporting. There's a, we got a footnote here. Our investigators uncovered little evidence suggesting that prior to the submission of the first FISA application, the FBI had made any serious attempts to identify Steele's primary subsource other than asking Steele to disclose the identities of his sources, which he refused to do. The reliability of Steele's reporting depended heavily on the reliability of his primary subsource because, as represented to the FISC, Steele's source reporting was principally derived from the primary subsource, who purportedly was running a network of subsources. The failure to identify the primary subsource early in the investigation's pursuit of FISA authority prevented the FBI from properly examining the possibility that some or much of the non-open source information contained in Steele's reporting was Russian disinformation that wittingly or unwittingly was passed along to Steele or that the reporting was otherwise not credible. In other words, um, they didn't care to find out who Steele's sources were. They asked. Steele said he wouldn't tell them, and they were like, okay. Well, we'll just go ahead and trust it. The unresolved prior FBI counterintelligence investigation of Danchenko. Importantly, and as discussed in Section 4D1C, the FBI knew in January 2017 that Danchenko had been the subject of an FBI counterintelligence investigation from 2009 to 2011. In late 2008, while Danchenko was employed by the Brookings Institution, he engaged two fellow employees about whether one of the employees might be willing or able in the future to provide classified information in exchange for money. According to one employee, Danchenko believed that he, the employee, 
might be following a mentor into the incoming Obama administration and have access to classified information. During this exchange, Danchenko informed the employee that he had access to people who were willing to pay for classified information. The concerned employee passed this information to a U.S. government contact, and the information was subsequently passed to the FBI. Based on this information, in 2009, the FBI opened a preliminary investigation into Danchenko. The FBI converted its investigation into a full investigation after learning that Danchenko, one, had been identified as an associate of two FBI counterintelligence subjects, two, had previous contact with the Russian embassy and known Russian intelligence officers, and three, had previous contact with the Russian embassy. Oh, wait, I said that. Sorry. Also, as discussed in Section 4D1C, at that earlier time, agents had interviewed several former colleagues of Danchenko who raised concerns about Danchenko's potential involvement with Russian intelligence. For example, one such colleague who had interned at a U.S. intelligence agency informed the office that Danchenko frequently inquired about that person's knowledge of a specific Russian military matter. Meanwhile, in July 2010, the FBI initiated a request to use FISA authorities against Danchenko, which was subsequently routed to department attorneys in August 2010. However, the investigation into Danchenko was closed in March 2011, after the FBI incorrectly concluded that Danchenko had left the country and returned to Russia. Our review found no indication that the Crossfire Hurricane investigators ever attempted to resolve the prior Danchenko espionage matter before opening him as a paid CHS. Moreover, our investigation found no indication that the Crossfire Hurricane investigators disclosed the existence of Danchenko's unresolved counterintelligence investigation to the department attorneys who were responsible for drafting the FISA renewal applications targeting Carter Page. As a result, the FISC was never advised of information that very well may have affected the FIC's view, FISC's view of Steele's primary subsource and his reliability and trustworthiness. Equally important is the fact that, th- that um, excuse me, equally important is the fact that in not resolving Danchenko's status, vis-a-vis the Russian intelligence services, it appears the FBI never gave appropriate consideration to the possibility that the intelligence Danchenko was providing to Steele, which again, according to Danchenko himself, made up a significant majority of the information in the Steele dossier reports, was in whole or in part Russian disinformation. Danchenko's relationship with Charles Dolan. During the relevant time period, Danchenko maintained a relationship with Charles Dolan, a Virginia-based public relations professional who had previously held multiple positions and roles in the Democratic National Committee, DNC, and the Democratic Party. In his role as a public relations professional, Dolan focused much of his career interacting with Eurasian clients with a particular focus on Russia. As described in Section 4D1D2, Dolan previously conducted business with the Russian Federation and maintained relationships with several key Russian officials, including Dmitry Peskov, the powerful press secretary of the Russian presidential administration. 
A number of these Russian government officials with whom Dolan maintained a relationship and was in contact with at the time Danchenko was collecting information for Steele would later appear in the dossier. In the summer and fall of 2016, at the time Danchenko was collecting information for Steele, Dolan traveled to Moscow, as did Danchenko, in connection with the business conference. As discussed in Section 4D1D3, the business conference was held at the Ritz-Carlton, Moscow, which, according to Steele reports, was allegedly the site of salacious, salacious sexual conduct on the part of Trump. Danchenko would later inform the FBI that he learned of these allegations through Ritz-Carlton staff members. Our investigation, however, revealed that it was Dolan, not Danchenko, who actually interacted with the hotel staff identified in the Steele report. So between the two, Dolan appears the more likely source of the allegations. As discussed in Section 4D1D6, our investigation also uncovered that Dolan was the definitive source for at least one allegation in the Steele reports. This allegation, contained in Steele Report 2016-105, concerned the circumstances surrounding the resignation of Paul Manafort from the Trump campaign. When interviewed by the office, Dolan admitted that he fabricated the allegation about Manafort that appeared in the Steele dossier. Or appeared in the Steele report. Our investigation also revealed that, in some instances, Dolan independently received other information strikingly similar to allegations that would later appear in the Steel reports. Nevertheless, when, F when interviewed by the FBI, Danchenko denied that Dolan was a source for any information in the Steel reports. Furthermore, as discussed in Section 4D1D3, during the relevant time period, Dolan maintained a business relationship with Olga Galkina, a childhood friend of Danchenko who, according to Danchenko, was a key source for many of the allegations contained in the Steele reports. In fact, when Galkina was interviewed by the FBI in August 2017, she admitted to providing Dolan with information that would later appear in the Steele reports. The FBI's failure to interview Charles Dolan Our investigation revealed that the Crossfire Hurricane investigators were aware of Dolan and his connections to Danchenko and the Steele reports. In fact, as discussed in Section 4D1B5, in early October 2016, Steele informed the FBI that Dolan was a person who might have relevant information about Trump. The FBI interviewed hundreds of individuals through the course of the Crossfire Hurricane and later investigations, and yet, it did not interview Dolan as a possible source of information about Trump. Our investigators interviewed Dolan on several occasions, as well as two other persons mentioned by Steele. Dolan initially denied being a source of information for the Steele reports. When, however, he was shown a particular Steele report relating to Paul Manafort and his resignation as Trump's campaign manager, along with related emails between himself and Danchenko in August 2016, he acknowledged that the reporting mirrored the information he had provided to Danchenko. Dolan acknowledged to the office that he fabricated this information. 
although both Steele and Olga Galkina suggested to the FBI that Dolan may have had information related to the Steele reports, our investigation was not able to definitively show that Dolan was the actual source, whether wittingly or unwittingly, for any additional allegations set forth in the Steele reports. Regardless, in light of the foregoing, there does not appear to have been an objectively sound reason for the FBI's failure to interview Chuck Dolan. Danchenko's claim regarding Sergei Milion. Perhaps the most damning allegation in the Steele report, or Steele dossier, was Company Report 2016-95, which Steele attributed to Source E, one of Danchenko's supposed subsources. This report, portions of which were included in each of the four FISA page, uh, page FISA applications, contributed to the public narrative of Trump conspiring and colluding with Russian officials. As discussed in Section 4D1F, Danchenko's alleged source for the information, Source E, was an individual by the name of Sergei Milion, who was president of the Russian-American Chamber of Commerce in New York City and a public Trump supporter. The evidence uncovered by the office showed that Danchenko never spoke with Sergei Milion and simply fabricated the allegation that he attributed to Milion. When interviewed by Crossfire Hurricane investigators in late January 2017, Danchenko said that Source E in Report 2016-95 sounded as though it was Sergei Milion. As discussed in Section 4D1F1, Danchenko stated that he never actually met Milion. Instead, he said that in late July 2016, he received an anonymous phone call from a person who did not identify himself, but who spoke with a Russian accent. Danchenko further explained that he thought it might have been Milion, someone Danchenko previously had emailed twice and received no response. After watching a YouTube video of Milion speaking, thus, as detailed in Section 4D1F1, the total support for the Source E information contained in Steel Report 2016-95 is a purported anonymous call from someone Danchenko had never met or spoken to, but who believed might be Sergei Milion, a Trump supporter, based on his listening to a YouTube video of Milion. Unfortunately, the investigation revealed that, instead of taking even basic steps, such as securing telephone call records for either Danchenko or Milion, to investigate Danchenko's hard-to-believe story about Milion, the Crossfire Hurricane investigators appear to have chosen to ignore this and other red flags concerning Danchenko's credibility, as well as Steele's. The Alpha Bank Allegations The office also investigated the actions of Perkins Cooey attorney Michael Sussman and others in connection with Sussman's provision of data and white papers to FBI General Counsel James Baker, purporting to show that there existed a covert communications channel between the Trump Organization and a Russia-based bank called Alpha Bank. As set forth in Section 4E1C3, in doing so, he represented to Baker by text message and in person that he was acting on his own and was not representing any client or company in providing the information to the FBI. 
Our investigation showed that, in point of fact, these representations to Baker were false and that Sussman was representing the Clinton campaign, as evidenced by, uh, among other things, his law firm's billing records and internal communications. In addition, Sussman was representing a second client, a technology executive named Rodney Joffe, as evidenced by various written communications, Sussman's subsequent congressional testimony, and other records. Cyber experts from the FBI examine. I got actually, I want to go right here. This footnote. Durham writes in this footnote. As noted in Section 4D2F, a federal grand jury in the Eastern District of Virginia returned a five-count indictment against Danchenko, charging him with making false statements. A trial jury, however, found the evidence was not sufficient to prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And I just want to say, I agree. I agree. The evidence presented at trial of Danchenko, in my opinion, was not sufficient to prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And what would have overcome that improved his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt is if Sergey Milion had chosen to show up. Danchenko is free because Sergey Milion refused to take the stand. All right, back to the report. Cyber experts from the FBI examined the materials given to Baker and concluded that they did not establish what Sussman claimed they showed. Yeah, like within 24 hours, they figured that out. At a later time, Sussman made a separate presentation regarding the Alpha Bank allegations to another U.S. government agency. That would be the CIA. And it, too, concluded that the materials did not show what Sussman claimed. Even the CIA was like, dude, this is, uh, no, this is not real. What are you doing? In connection with that second presentation, Sussman made a similar false statement to that agency, claiming that he was not providing the information on behalf of any client. With respect to the Alpha Bank materials, our investigation established that Joffe had tasked a number of computer technology researchers who worked for companies he was affiliated with like Newstar, who had, and uh, Packet Forensics and others, and who had access to certain internet records, DNS lookups, to mine the internet data to establish an inference and narrative tying then-candidate Trump to Russia. In directing these researchers to exploit their access in this manner, Joffe indicated that he was seeking to please certain VIPs, in context referring to individuals at Perkins Coie who were involved in campaign matters and the Clinton campaign. During its investigation, the office also learned that after the 2016 presidential election, Joffe emailed an individual and told that person that he, Joffe, was tentatively offered the top cybersecurity job by the Democrats when it looked like they'd win. Sounds like a quid pro quo to me. As explained in Section 4E1C1 
The evidence collected by the office also demonstrated that prior to providing the unfounded Alpha Bank claims to the FBI, Sussman and Fusion GPS, the Clinton campaign's opposition research firm, had provided the same information to various news organizations and were pressing reporters to write articles about the alleged secret communications channel. Moreover, during his September 2016 meeting at the FBI, Sussman told Baker that an unnamed news outlet was in possession of the information and would soon publish a story about it. The disclosure of the media's involvement caused the FBI to contact the news outlet, whose name was eventually provided by Sussman in the hope of delaying any public reporting on the subject. In doing so, it confirmed for the New York Times that the FBI was looking into the matter. On October, I just want to like y'all get that right. Like that was the that was such a setup. Sussman and them gave the info to the media first in order to trick the FBI into contacting the media that they gave it to and saying, yo, hold off on publishing that stuff. When they contacted the New York Times and told them, hey, yo, hold up, don't publish that stuff yet, they at the same time confirmed to the New York Times that the information Sussman gave them was in fact being investigated, which gave the New York Times the headlines they wanted. On October 31st, 2016, less than two weeks before the election, the New York Times and others published articles on the Alpha Bank matter, and the Clinton campaign issued tweets and public statements on the allegations of a secret channel of communications being used by the Trump Organization and a Russian bank. Allegations that had been provided to the media and the FBI by Fusion GPS and Sussman, both of whom were working for the Clinton campaign. Conclusion. Based on the review of Crossfire Hurricane and related intelligence activities, we conclude that the department and the FBI failed to uphold their important mission of strict fidelity to the law in connection with certain events and activities described in this report. As noted, Former FBI attorney Kevin Kleinsmith committed a criminal offense by fabricating language in an email that was material to the FBI obtaining a FISA surveillance order. In another instance, or in other instances, FBI personnel working on that same FISA application displayed, at best, a cavalier attitude towards accuracy and completeness. FBI personnel also repeatedly disregarded important requirements when they continued to seek renewals of that FISA surveillance while acknowledging, both then and in hindsight, that they did not genuinely believe there was probable cause to believe that the target was knowingly engaged in clandestine intelligence activities on behalf of a foreign power or knowingly helping another person in such activities. And certain personnel disregarded significant exculpatory information that should have prompted investigative restraint and re-examination. Our investigation also revealed that senior FBI personnel displayed a serious lack of analytical rigor 
towards the information that they received, especially information received from politically affiliated persons and entities. This information in part triggered and sustained Crossfire Hurricane and contributed to the subsequent need for Special Counsel Mueller's investigation. Man, I want to drill into that sentence right there. Y'all ready for some bicameral thinking? This information. Let me back up to the first sentence before that. Our investigation also revealed that senior FBI personnel displayed serious lack of analytical rigor towards the information they received, especially information received from politically affiliated persons and entities. This information in part triggered and sustained Crossfire Hurricane and contributed to the subsequent need for Special Counsel Mueller's investigation. I read that and I think, yeah, Special Counsel Mueller's investigation was a trap. Special Counsel Mueller's investigation was needed because Crossfire Hurricane was so corrupt. And Special Counsel Mueller's investigation was a trap that not only investigated a number of people who needed to be investigated and gathered a bunch of evidence, millions of pages, but also trapped bad actors within FBI and DOJ who were who themselves were out to get Trump, gave them an investigation to work inside of, which was according to media reports, out to get Trump, but in reality was out to get the people inside Trump's campaign who were out to frame him. Special counsel, in other words, special counsel Mueller's investigation is part of the plan. I don't know if you guys have figured that out yet, but uh, yeah, it was. In particular, there was significant reliance on investigative leads provided or funded directly or indirectly, by Trump's political opponents. The department did not adequately examine or question these materials and the motivations of those providing them, even when at about the same time the director of the FBI and others learned of significant and potentially contrary intelligence. In light of the foregoing, there is a continuing need for the FBI and the department to recognize the lack of analytical rigor, apparent confirmation bias, and an overwillingness to rely on information from individuals connected to political opponents caused investigators to fail to adequately consider alternative hypotheses and to act without appropriate objectivity or restraint in pursuing allegations of collusion or conspiracy between a U.S. political campaign and a foreign power. Although recognizing that in hindsight, much is that in hindsight, much is clear. Much of this also seems to have been clear at the time. We therefore believe it is important to examine past conduct to identify shortcomings and improve how the government carries out its most sensitive functions. Section five discusses some of these issues more fully. This report does not recommend any wholesale changes in the guidelines and policies that the department and FBI now have in place to ensure proper conduct and accountability and how counterintelligence activities are carried out. 
Rather, it is intended to accurately describe the matters that fell under our review and to assist the Attorney General in determining how the Department and FBI can do a better, more credible job in fulfilling its responsibilities and in analyzing and responding to politically charged allegations in the future. Ultimately, of course, meeting those responsibilities comes down to the integrity of the people who take an oath to follow the guidelines and policies currently in place. Guidelines that date from the time of Attorney General Levi and that are designed to ensure the rule of law is upheld. As such, the answer is not the creation of new rules, but a renewed fidelity to the old. The promulgation of additional rules and regulations to be learned in yet more training sessions would likely prove to be a fruitless exercise if the FBI's guiding principles of fidelity, bravery, and integrity are not ingrained in the hearts and minds of those sworn to meet the FBI's mission of protecting the American people and upholding the Constitution of the United States. The ne- this, is a, this is a good stopping point for us, both time-wise and in the document. The next section of the document gets into the applicable laws and department policies and um, rules of federal prosecution, principles of them. I'll discuss this section with you, but we're going we're gonna to skip past it and go to the next section that gets into investigative issues that they found. But this section that's included in here is um, the reason it's included is because, one, it's important and it, it gives you important information if you're trying to understand what the policies are and why prosecutions happen or don't happen. Um, but it's in here because Durham ends up referencing this section over and over again as the report continues. And he's using it to say, hey, look, at the, especially he uses it, especially in regards to the previous Clinton investigation. So it's good that it's in here, but we're going to go ahead and skip it. Um, I do want to make a quick comment that the Attorney General Garland and FBI Director Mueller, I mean, um, FBI Director Ray, they're going to have to talk about the Durham report. They're going to be asked about the Durham report. And it's going to be really, really interesting to see what Garland and Ray say about this report how they handle it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how the left is going to is going to react? How the Democrats are going to react if Attorney General Garland comes out and backs up Durham and everything that's in this report? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about the scenario where AG Garland is Handling the Durham report and being like, yeah, Durham did amazing work. This report stands on its own. And like, think about that. Think about Attorney General Garland standing by Durham's report. Should be fun. Should be a lot of fun for us. Um... All right, next, we're going to come back um, on Friday. I have a show tonight with Devolution Power Hour, and it's going to be lit. Uh, John has a massive Devo proof 
that we're going to go over. We're definitely going to be talking about Durham Report. And I don't know what else. Burning Bright is going to be doing what Burning Bright does and, uh, you know, blabbing about stuff. And uh, then me and John are going to be giving you guys information. Um, so it should be a really good show. When we come back on Friday, we will dive back into this several pages further ahead. I don't know. Where does it? Let me see where the next section goes that I really want to get into. That's FISA stuff. Rent requirements, Woods procedures, false statements. Oh, we're almost there. We're skipping a lot of pages. I just I I want to make I just want y'all to see just how much we're gonna skip so that you don't think, oh my gosh, it's gonna take 10 shows or more for Kyle to get through all this. It won't. Um facts and prosecution decisions. Yeah, it's right up in here. So we're going to skip like 30 pages, uh, 20 to 30 pages. Um, and we'll, and we'll pick up down here. Um, because I'm going to be, because this is our mission, this is going to be our focus for the next several shows. I may, may, this is not a promise. I may go live on Thursday at some point and get some of this in so that we can try and get this done. Like we can try and stay at, not get too far behind the news cycle. I may be able to go live on Thursday and do a couple hours of reading in this. I'll do my Friday morning show and we'll do more reading of it. And then this weekend I, um, I was planning on watching Formula One, um, but there's flooding in Italy. And so the Formula One race that's supposed to happen this weekend has been flooded out. Uh, so that frees up my weekend. I do have to do some yard work, but I may even do a show this weekend covering some more of this. Because I'm serious. I want to I go through every single page of this, but I don't want to stretch it out over my no, my normal show schedule. If I can get more shows in, then I'm going to do that so that we can get this done um, more quickly. So uh, let me get over here. Also, actually, before I get to that, uh, also, if you're interested in following along, or following ahead, go to my Twitter or my True Social <laughs> Formula Durham HQ line. <laughs> Formula Durham. <laughs> that's what it's going to be. Oh, that's so good. That is exactly what this is going to be for a while. Um, go to my Twitter at Real Just Human on Twitter. At Real Just Human on Twitter. My pinned tweet is my thread on this doc on on this report. And you can, it's huge, and I'm going to continuously add to it. This afternoon, I'll add some more, and you can read through here, and I'm just pulling out highlights. Occasionally, I'm giving comments, dropping emojis, uh, things like that. But go through, you can go through here if you're interested, and also you can share it with people if um, they're not interested in a show about this, send them my thread. So, Oh, and very last thing, very last thing. I want to say a very sincere thank you 
to everyone who, um, upon the news of uh, buymeacoffee.com canceling me, I want to say a sincere thank you to everyone who signed up for a paid subscription to my Substack, justhuman.substack.com. I sincerely appreciate you guys buying um, subscriptions. A lot of people did. Um, and that was all. It was awesome. It, it was awesome to get all these notifications after the show on Monday and on, uh, on Tuesday to see all these new, all these new signups to my Substack. Um, now that buymeacoffee.com is gone, Substack is the best way to, uh, contribute to what I do. The majority of your dollar actually ends up going to me. Substack takes a very, very small cut and like single digit percentage. So yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, buymeacoffee.com represented a, um, a big chunk of my income that made this show possible. That's gone. And so many of you stepped up and got a paid subscription to my Substack and have helped replace that, that income. So, um, just this, thank you so much. I like, I just, just, it was amazing to see. It was, it was amazing to see. So, um, thank you guys very much. And if you're looking for ways to support, to support the show, like it, share it, justhuman.substack.com, bensonhoneyfarms.com, get yourself some honey with rep code just human, red, white, and bourbon45.com, get yourself a just human coffee mug or sticker or pint glass or t-shirt, whatever you're interested in. And, uh, yeah, those are the ways to support it. All those links are in the description. And guys, that's the show. So hope you guys have a great day. I'm enjoying this. Hope you are too. I will see you tonight on Devolution Power Hour. And uh, look for if, whenever I just, if an opportunity comes up for me to stream, I'll post it on all my socials and, and go live. So, and we'll, we'll keep diving into this. Love you guys. Remember, we're not going to win every battle. We are going to win this war. God bless you. I'll see you later.